walking them up the street to a friend's house, and some guy, um, some guy pulled towards me. I figured to ask for directions. An older guy, maybe. Um, but he asked me, "Do you want to go to Mc McDonald's?" So I, so, so I, I ran into the neighbor's yard and I just started screaming and and, and just screaming. Welcome back to the next chapter of Holly's Been Taken. I'm Richard Price. Before we begin, let me say that those who are sensitive to disturbing content should not tune in. There will be details about the abduction and murder of an innocent child, which is distressing to hear. This story could be harrowing and haunting to some, so please keep that in mind. Wilfred Bertrand was getting ready for work that morning, repairing motorcycles at a nearby shop, when he spotted a stream of Massachusetts State Police cruisers race by his house on Five Bridge Road, a narrow, windy dirt road. It was the fourth Saturday of October. The trees were spreading a soft blanket of orange, yellow, and dark red leaves in the woods. As Halloween approached, excitement was building for kids of all ages. Pumpkins on stoops, comic-looking vampire decorations, and snicker bars stashed away. Somewhere, the acrid scent of burn piles was in the air. Hunting season had started. Newly stocked pheasants were in the woods behind Bertrand's Lot, a wildlife area in the small, charming town of Brimfield, population 3,000. It is a quiet community where only a part-time police force is needed. The biggest attraction is a thrice-a-year massive flea market billed as the oldest outdoor event of its kind in America, visited by over 50,000 bargain hunters. Bertrand's next-door neighbor, Angela Govani, also saw the cruisers race by. The forest, a wooded floodplain owned by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, is not actively managed, but is open to the public. It is known as a hunting and fishing paradise to locals who appreciate it not just for its abundance but also for its seclusion. Threaded through the property are two unfinished abandoned rail beds convenient for hunters to pull a pickup truck through after backing a deer. But what was the commotion? Perhaps a hunter was injured from a fall or an accidental gunshot. Curious, Bertrand stepped out of his house into the chilly air. It was about 8.45 and the sky was brightening up. Soon, he saw a team of hunters he didn't recognize emerge from the woods with their dogs, looking dazed and shaken. The men told him they found partial human remains. Traveling over 500 yards on the rough railroad bed terrain, the state police troopers, guided by the hunters, approached a brushy clearing near the Quinnebog River where they spotted the remains with a child-sized t-shirt and one sneaker. Soon, a small army of Brimfield cops, state police, detectives, fire trucks, and crime scene investigators from Worcester and Hampton counties descended on the countryside. The spot is also about 200 yards from the back of Bertrand's property. A local paper observed that the investigators worked from four vehicles, 
with a Brimfield Fire Department pickup truck ferrying equipment and personnel to and from the area. Seventy-nine days had passed since Holly Peranian went missing. On August 5, 1993, the ten-year-old disappeared while on vacation at her grandparents' house in nearby Sturbridge, a bedroom community in a quiet, semi-rural neighborhood. She and her baby brother, Zach, took a five-minute walk to see a litter of collie puppies play on a neighbor's property. Around noon, Zach returned home, leaving his sister alone. Her kidnapping triggered a massive search that included law enforcement and volunteers. Investigators later learned that a middle-aged man in a pickup truck stalked two teen girls about 200 yards away, sparking speculation that he was responsible for Holly's abduction. Now, just nine miles from the abduction, it appeared the search was over, though investigators weren't ready to admit that. But it seemed grimly obvious with the lone sneaker and the clothes that matched her description. Just before noon, a police crew with chainsaws and clippers buzzed and hacked a footpath from the old rail trail to the clearing where the remains laid. Overhead, local TV news helicopters circled. Quickly, the scene became a circus. Govani had to call in sick from work because Five Bridge Road was unpassable with cruisers. TV trucks with satellite dishes pointed to the sky, newspaper reporters and curiosity seekers. Govani and her fiancé, who was still mending from a leg operation after a motorcycle accident, were well aware of the Peranian case. Since August, as they watched the drama unfold on local TV news, Angela told her fiancé if the girl was found, it would be by hunters. She was right. She just didn't know it would be in the woods behind her house. The intensive investigation continued on Sunday. Several police officers, some with rakes, removed leaves that had fallen on the crime scene. Investigators took photos as they scoured the area. Others turned Bertrand's large field into their parking lot since the edge of his land was close to the site. Most prominent was a state police incident management vehicle, which is about the size of a bus. Crawling on hands and knees, Investigators scooped handfuls of earth, sticks, leaves, and acorns into plastic bags. They delivered them to a workstation on the trail where four men sifted the debris through two screens and onto a tarp, the Springfield Republican, a local daily observed from a distance. Occasionally, one would find something of interest that would be put aside or into another bag. In the clearing marked with three orange cones, Investigators mapped out a 40-foot area around the remains, sifting through dirt to get blood samples and other items. Some worked with metal detectors and rakes. By late Sunday afternoon, a state medical examiner's van backed slowly down the rail trail that runs parallel to Five Bridge Road to accept what appeared to be two large, neatly folded paper sacks. The Hampton County District Attorney, William Bennett, said his county's medical examiner would perform an autopsy, the Republican reported. A reporter from that paper was one of the first on the scene that day. My name is Cosmo Macero Jr. I'm 55 years old now. Uh, in 1993, I was a reporter for the Springfield Union News and the Sunday Republican, a newspaper based in Springfield, Massachusetts. I've had so many days like this 
in my career, uh, including 9-11, when I, you know, where a story consumes you and really a whole team of people for the first day. And then you realize this story is going to be consuming you for days and days and days. And, and that's what this was. This might have been the first kind of moment like that that I had and sort of a nonstop um, pursuit of leads between the time when uh, when Holly uh, vanished in August in Sturbridge and the time that the remains were found, all kinds of potential leads were pouring out. Mediums and psychics had all kinds of theories and profilers were developing their, um, uh, their theories. And there was a lot of journalistic infill trying to answer these questions, right? Trying to, what, what happened here? What could have happened? What does this expert say? What does this uh, former FBI profiler from Houston say? What does this forensic expert? There's only so much movement that's going to happen because the investigation is sort of at a standstill. That milestone of the remains being found, you know, sort of the floodgates open of a whole new phase of this ongoing story. Authorities told the Republican and the Boston Globe there were no signs of blunt trauma to the head or other body parts. But after 79 days in the woods, exposed to the elements, there was no tissue to examine. And with no visible signs of damage to the bones, it may be challenging to determine how the girl died, investigators told the media. The remains were sent to the FBI Crime Laboratory in Washington, D.C. to help officials determine the cause of death and potentially provide clues to her killer. Maureen Lemieux, the girl's grandmother, told the Worcester Telegram, a daily from the next county. Four state police officials from Hampton and Worcester counties met a week after the grim discovery with Lemieux, Tina Harrington, mother, Holly's mother, and Mary Harrington Cooper, Holly's maternal grandmother, for one and a half hours. It did not give us any hope that someone would be arrested in the next few weeks, she told the telegram. Lemieux also told the Worcester paper the remains had been tested at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center in Worcester, then sent to the medical examiner's office in Springfield for further analysis. A Boston State Police crime lab received the clothes found near the remains for further study. Since investigators were not sharing too much about their findings, experts not connected to the investigation weighed in to help fill in the gaps. Then a Northeastern University professor of sociology and criminology, Jack Levin, told the Telegram that x-rays the medical examiner uses to identify Holly will tell him more about the victim and how she died, but not about the killer. This is the most difficult crime for the police to solve because of a lack of physical evidence, he told the paper three days after the Brimfield discovery. This is the kind of murder that is not often solved unless you get a confession or someone snitches on someone else. The longer the body is left to the elements, the fewer leads will result, Levin said. Most solved homicides are solved within the first 24 hours, Levin said. After two months, the trail goes cold. While the body's condition is vital, Levin added that the crime scene could also provide valuable leads. If they had a crime scene, there may be microscopic fibers, hair, semen, or blood to connect to a murderer, he told the paper at the time. With skeletal remains, there is nothing left. But one of the most telling pieces of evidence is how her remains were left behind in the open 
and not buried in a shallow grave as first reported. The one detail of this type that I remember vividly, because I was taught, I remember the conversation. I remember asking this particular uh, source, this particular officer, I guess they, I guess these hunters found her in like in, in a shallow grave. He's like, no, he goes, no, no, they didn't. And he, he stopped me, you know, because, because it was an assumption because, because what do you do when you're disposing of a body relatively quickly? You, you try to cover it up, um, especially if the perpetrator um, travels that distance to dispose of the body and, and the, you know, the picture that was, that was painted um, from different investigators, possibly actually committing, committing the, uh, the homicide there in, in that, in that wooded area in Broome. That's information that go, goes into a story and here we are today with the case unsolved. So we don't know, we don't know for certain, but it was, it was eye-opening and chilling, you know, and, 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 and chilling. Remember the team of retired investigators from episode one who drew the August 5 timeline in Sturbridge? They said, quote, an autopsy and forensic examination of her clothing later established Little Holly had been stripped naked, assaulted by her killer or killers, murdered, and left completely exposed in the August heat. Alan Swedlin then chairman of the anthropology department at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, weighed in back in 1993. He told the Springfield Republican that the conditions around where Holly's skeletal remains were found, not just the body, would likely lead investigators to suspect she was killed in the Brimfield Woods. It could be the way the remains were positioned, or maybe they have evidence of somebody else being there, Swindland said. If they believe the murder was at that site, then the context of the area might be telling them. On November 5, 1993, the medical examiner marked Holly's case on her death certificate as a homicide with the date of her injury on or about August 5, 1993. Time of injury, unknown. Description of how the injury occurred, unknown. Place of injury, location, an hour of death, all unknown. I spoke with different crime experts about this case. One of the key takeaways from one of them was that the way she was left could reveal quite a bit about the killer, such as whether he lived in the community. A source told me that, statistically speaking, if the killer leaves the body in full view, it gives the impression it was committed by a stranger passing through. But when a sexual assault is part of the crime, the limited research says, the perpetrator knew the victim or the family, which in this case is a contradiction. But statistically, there are very few cases like this one, so studies can at some point let us down. It's revealing if the body was dropped on the ground and not hidden or buried in a shallow grave. It could mean the killer did not care, was likely a stranger to Holly and her family, and was sophisticated enough to pre-plan but didn't have much experience. If you recall from episode two, there are between 40 and 150 incidents of child abduction murder each year, which is less than half of 1% of murders committed nationally. On average, one child abduction murder for every 10,000 reports of a missing child. 
People from the area I interviewed said the location of the body implies that only someone familiar with the area would leave it in this spot. It's not just disposing of remains. It's, it's this horrible uh, crime where this, this, uh, this poor innocent girl is abducted and then taken on a 10-mile ride over we don't know how long a period of time. We don't know exactly what happened between the moment of abduction uh, and, and, the, and the moment uh, she became deceased. You know, th this is the act of a real of a real criminal monster. Right? This is the act of a predator and someone who knows the area and someone who is among us uh, uh, that is, is what the community, I can tell you, believed. And, and, and by the way, this you know, this is also a it just so happens to be kind of a transient crossroads kind of region. It's the, it's near the intersection of Interstate 84, Interstate 90. Route 20, which is which is a which is a state highway, but it is not a uh, a back road at all. It's a, you know, and it's easy. It, you can be you know in and out uh, uh, and off on, on your way and gone forever very easily. Before we continue, here is a call to action: the Peranian family needs your help. If you or someone you know has information, no matter how seemingly inconsequential please contact the Hampton District Attorney's Office in Springfield, Massachusetts. The website is hamptonda.com. That's H-A-M-P, like Paul, D like dog, E-N-D-A.com. You may also call the Massachusetts State Police Detective Unit at 413-505-5946 or the State Police Unresolved Cases Unit at 855-627-6583. You can also text the word SOLVE to 274-637 from your cell phone. You can also find all this info plus links in the podcast episode description. As I drove to the Brimfield Woods for the first time, my head was, you could imagine, filled with grim thoughts. In my mind, I saw the police on their hands and knees, scrutinizing acorns, branches, rocks, leaves, and disturbed earth for bits of hair, clothing, and anything else that could be a puzzle piece. If they found litter, I imagined it was bagged, sealed, and sent away to a lab team for a deep dive. Brush, small trees, and scrub were leveled around a specific spot in search of something, whatever that something could be. Then I pulled into a dirt lot on Five Bridge Road, the Brimfield section of the Grand Trunk Trail, and walked around a yellow gate on one of two paths. At first, I struggled to find the family's homemade memorial marker. But during my search... I was blissfully lost in a nature preserve that was worth the 45-minute drive on the Mass Pike, avoiding 18-wheelers while Porsche SUVs darted from lane to lane. I saw sweet birch, white pine trees, and wild blueberry bushes during a summer walk. The skies teemed with songbirds. I spotted rabbits and wild strawberries. 
A turtle poked its head out of the marsh. A woman waved as she walked her corgis off leash. I waved back. For those who know, the Brimfield Woods is a spot to clear your mind. But it's also a spot where someone, who's not right in the head, went and saw its dark potential as they plotted and schemed. Then I found it. A cross-shaped marker decorated with toys, painted rocks, and a faded photo of Holly stapled to it. Here, someone murdered a child. Then I slowly began to imagine how this crime could have happened, and if being there would lend more insight to the person, or maybe the people, who pulled this off. Soon, I too recognized it was a place that only a local would know. The marker, down an embankment, was about 189 yards from the former Gavani property, and about 220 yards to the edge of the Bertrands. Thick tree cover and scrub buffeted both homes. Since it's near the Quinnebog River, the site gets soggy in the spring. The cross is on the edge of a line of trees near a clearing, which stretches south to the riverbank, then elbows northwest, where it connects with a raised trolley bed. When I walked in a westerly direction, the second rail bed, separated by about 40 yards of wetlands, ran parallel. In the other direction from the marker, I walked up the embankment and connected to the old railbed trail. Heading east would take me past the Gavani house and the edge of the Bertrand property where the state police set up camp almost 30 years ago. Heading west would eventually run parallel to the trolley path, more wetland, and Firebridge Road. At the top of the embankment, directly across the rail trail, I also discovered a footpath pointing north along the edge of the Gavani land. It looked like a route carved by hunters. I hiked it, pushing aside weeds and hopping over mud while getting scratched by thorn bushes. It led to Five Bridge. That short hike reminded me of Elizabeth Schoff, the 14-year-old whose case I mentioned in Episode 2. She was marched through the woods by her kidnapper, a middle-aged construction worker. But then I thought of Holly, walking in the brush with one shoe. Although plausible, the image in my mind made it seem batshit. Then again, imagine the type of person who would do this. You should know that the site today is a well-groomed and inviting spot, thanks to a team of dedicated volunteers and the Army Corps of Engineers who cleaned the area up 20 years ago. I'm telling you this because I'm trying to figure out how hard it would have been for a truck to get to its macabre destination. Some people I spoke to didn't know the woods well and had fuzzy memories. Some said the gates were there at the time. Some said they weren't. Here again is Cosmo Macero, the journalist. It was accessible, but not, not inviting, right? It was an accessible location, but it, it, you know, it was not a groomed area necessarily. It was not, you know, you probably had to know a little bit about how to access that area, how to get, how to, how to follow the trail in order to get in there uh, with ease, you know. I'm not saying you, you, didn't, you didn't need a four-wheel drive vehicle, but, you know, I, I remember, I'm glad I had one that day because it, you know, it was appropriate for where we were going, you know. But I don't want, I don't want to overstate it. it. It wasn't as if it was rocky terrain that you couldn't get to with, but it was, it's not an inviting kind of easy path, um, at least not at the time. Did you drive right into the clearing or yeah, did you walk? Um, we drove in as close as close as we had to without 
feeling like we, we, we were going to disturb the area. It, it, we, it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't like a hike into the woods. It was, we drove up and were able to you know, walk, walk a distance, some, uh, some yards. It, it wasn't like, a, you know, an hour, a half an hour hike or something. I also spoke to Tony Byes, a resident and a former Brimfield Trail Committee member. He was part of the restoration that started in 2005 and said he knew the area very well in 1993. He remembered the trails, had a lot of growth, but mostly newer trees. The yellow gate I mentioned wasn't there in 93, Bice said. An old photo from the Springfield Union confirmed that. He believes a truck or vehicle could have driven into the clearing on the rail trail and could have turned around because it was not heavily grown over. It was desolate, Tony told me. Or as Cosmo said, it was accessible but not inviting. And let's not forget, it's a quick commute to major highways, including two interstates that can take you to Boston, Hartford, Connecticut, or the New York State line. If we add this up, the multiple trails, the accessibility, the remoteness, and the fishermen and hunters who knew the site, we get a slightly better picture. A truck would have been ideal and made it easier to transport a child. If the retired investigator's narrative that the driver of a pickup truck with a cap over its bed is the alleged culprit, then perhaps he drove straight to Brimfield from Sturbridge. But there's so much we don't know. Could one man in a truck complete its route with a child inside? Or did the pair have to hike at some point, assuming she was still alive? If that was the case, could he have done it alone, or did he need help? As one expert speculated, did the kidnapper drive straight to the woods or did he stop somewhere else? I'm not sure, but if the abductor was the one who targeted the teen girls, did the cap over his truck cab lock from the outside, trapping the 10-year-old? Regardless, as I see it, the crime scene is not just a pocket in a clearing, but also extends to a chunk of the trails and any accessible paths. From the marker to the parking lot, both trails are about 555 yards each. Further down Five Bridge is another access point, about 960 yards from Holly. Then you have the footpath I hiked and the access from the edge of the Bertrand property. There's one more I didn't know until Angela Gavani pointed it out. On Five Bridge, next to the Bertrand property, is an almost invisible path that a truck could partially back into. A few yards from there, one can walk to a secret spot where locals dump tires, old tanks, and trailers. I found it later, and it's a well-hidden shithole, not known by the trail committee member or park rangers I interviewed. But it is also a walk through some tall scrub to the rail trail, and then another short walk to the marker. But of all the routes, I would bet the one chosen was through the parking lot. The killer would have driven his vehicle, again, perhaps that pickup truck the investigators referred to, east along the trolley path closer to the river. He would then bear right and around the clearing toward where the railroad path meets, stop before the embankment, take her out, commit his crimes, step back into the truck, turn around and head back the way he came. This path is furthest from Holmes and Five Bridge. He probably turned around because driving straight and then trying to make a sharp left onto the other rail bed would have been tricky 
and he could have been stuck. It seemed like a relatively easy way in and out. But I still can't dismiss the Bertrand access. Easy to get on the trail, then a quick left to the spot. Exit would be straight and around the path next to the river, or return the way you came. But he could have been spotted by someone in the house, unless the killer knew no one was home. This presents a series of combinations where the crime scene is much broader than just a lone spot on the ground, and it is thousands of yards from point to point. It also leaves unanswered questions such as, did investigators know of the dump site? Did they do a forensic search of the paths? How about the river shoreline? Did they gather evidence that might show who did it? Here is Cosmo Macero once again with his thoughts. It is amazing as I talk to you now, what is it, 28 years later, and knowing that so many other mysteries of this type have been resolved, uh, even within Massachusetts, and it's still an unsolved case. It is remarkable because there was a sense that this case was solvable, that this case was just a matter of identifying the right person among a group of people that was already known to law enforcement. There, and there, there was a belief as they compiled, as, as detectives do what they do in, in, in looking at those who have knowledge of, familiarity with access to um, uh, a particular site or a crime scene or location, that they assemble a list of people who potentially should be uh, looked at or interviewed or asked about or whatever it may be. And that list from the report I did at the time, it grew and grew and grew and it, and it was it was it was really long. And they had sort of a universe of people. If you were covering the case and certainly more so for those who are investigating the case, you had to think, all right, this is our universe of suspects. Our person, our guy is on here. By the time I had moved on a few years later to a different uh, uh, job and uh, to a different newspaper in Boston, disappointing and distressing that the case remained open, but it was still like, oh, you know, someday I'm going to wind up coming back here when this thing is solved, just to understand sort of what the what the outcome was. You know, that was just, it, it was the idea was that this thing is going to be solved. That's what I thought to myself. Years go by and the years go by and the years go by. Before we walk out of the woods, we have one more boulder to roll over and dust for fingerprints. This story involves a creepy man causing a nearby neighborhood the day before Holly's remains were found. Scott Shosick, then 12 years old, was targeted by this man on October 22, 1993, soon after Scott stepped out of his house on Apple Road in Brimfield. His street, off any main road, is about four and a half miles north of the soon-to-be-discovered crime scene. Well, the main thing that I remember is I'm walking, I'm walking um, up the street to a friend's house because we had um we we had neighbors, neighbors that you weren't allowed to walk through their yard, so we had to walk up in the street. And some guy um, some guy pulled towards me. I figured to ask for directions. An older guy at the time, I would have said he was about. Fifty, maybe. Um, but he asked me, "Do you want to go to Mc McDonald's?" So I, so so I, I ran into the neighbor's yard and I just started screaming and 
and, and just screaming. Then all, all the neighbors came out and the car just took off. Do you remember anything else about him, uh, what he looked like? That I don't really remember what it looks like, but I remember the car. It looked like an old, um, I would say, from looked like from the 70s, and it was a tan car. It was just a four-door sedan. I want to say Dodge, but I'm not sure. And this was on Apple Road? Yes. Okay. And so you called out for help, and he left, and that was the end of it. And you never, you've never seen that car before? You've nope. Never saw it again, I assume? Correct. Okay. Do you know if other children your age were approached by somebody in your neighborhood? Um, if they did, if they were approached, they never said anything. Or he didn't try to grab you? He didn't... Nope. Obviously, it sounds like from the way you re reacted that um, that you were really scared. You, you did not think that this was just a normal thing. Correct, yeah. And this has never happened to you before, I assume? Nope, never. Looking back on this, after close to 30 years, do you think that there's possibly some kind of a relationship between what happened to you and what happened in this unsolved murder case? It wouldn't surprise me. Let's just put it that way, because I'm not sure, but it wouldn't surprise me. And why do you say that? Um, um, because um, you talk about the um, Holly, Holly Perrine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, the road, the road where she was picked up. The road she was picked up on. It was. It, it was not. It, it, it was out, it was out of the way um, you would you would, you would you would have to know the town to to find out to figure out the road she was on and same same as with um 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 throughout out of the app road so I think it was um local right both on both cases do you think it's possible that this could be the same person oh yes. Yeah, I really do. Yeah, yes, I do. And when we when we called the cops, um, um, they thought it was possibly the same people as well. Okay. Have you been interviewed by the police over the years since then? Nope, just that night. That just was that it. Night, and that was it. Yep. Yep. And was just the Brimfield police, or did uh, other police officers from other departments come in and talk to you? Um, I believe the state police came in because because they. They brought a book of um, um of um, mug shots, just to see if I recognized anybody, and I didn't. It, it, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's from what I can, from what you're saying to me, it sounds like that you know, obviously Brimfield is a quiet community. It's a rural community. Yeah. And kids do walk along the road. No one ever approaches them. No one ever uh, threatens them in any any way or manner. It's never happened to you. It's never happened to any of your friends, or at least uh, they haven't told you about it. And it's never happened to you since then. Um, so it, it, it sounds like what you're saying is this is, this is really kind of uh, an anomaly, an out-of-the-blue kind of thing. And yeah. A records request to the Brimfield Police Department was fruitless. But here is a revealing detail. The Massachusetts State Police denied a public records request because they said it is part of the Perrinian case.
in an October 1993 Boston Globe article. The paper wrote only three paragraphs on this without identifying the victim and buried it on page 21. The then Brimfield police chief, Donald Norton, told the Globe there was no indication the incident was related to the Sturbridge case. My interview with Scott and the stonewalling of documents by the state police said otherwise. Is the man who targeted Scott the same who abducted Holly? I couldn't say definitively, but the crime scene is 10 minutes away. Plus the apparent randomness of this attempt and that Scott remembered the man as middle-aged, just like the teen girls in Sturbridge. Brimfield is a rural community with a crime rate so low, the town got by with a part-time police force. This alleged targeting is hard to dismiss as more than a coincidence. But if the man who approached Scott was the same person, he was still on the prowl and a risk to everyone. So why didn't the local media or the police do a better job of alerting the community? As we close the episode, I want to thank the Peranian family, Scott Shosick, Cosmo Macero Jr., Angela Gavani, the Brimfield Police, and Tony Bonds. Music is by Immersive Music and Kevin Mason. It's written, recorded, and edited by me, Richard Price, for Short Walk Media. Of course, a huge thanks to you, the listener. Be sure to give us a five-star review. It will help with our ratings, attract more listeners, one who may reach out to the police with more information about this case.